0: Hey, unfuckers, it's Max. Just a reminder to visit our new and improved website at unftr.com to check out the new articles, resources, and information on our revised membership tiers. Also, in addition to the free weekly newsletter, we've partnered with our friends at Newsbeat to develop a premium newsletter dropped earlier in the week as part of every membership tier. If you're not subscribed to the free version, you can do this easily on the website as well. That's it. Now, on with the show.
1: Listen to us talk, we're world-renowned. Download our podcast, where you will consume all the doom
0: and gloom from 99 and Max. Many sound design always inspires to your heart's desire. Hey man, you know there's nothing that we lack past your ears into your mind through the heart all the facts on your podcasting app comes a basic white man with a rusty microphone in his red right hand
1: There is a particular kind of pain, elation, loneliness, and terror involved in this kind of madness. When you're high, it's tremendous. The ideas and feelings are fast and frequent like shooting stars, and you follow them until you find better and brighter ones. Shyness goes, the right words and gestures are suddenly there, the power to captivate others a felt certainty. There are interests found in uninteresting people— Sensuality is pervasive, and the desire to seduce and be seduced irresistible. Feelings of ease, intensity, power, well-being, financial omnipotence, and euphoria pervade one's marrow. But somewhere, this changes. The fast ideas are far too fast, and there are far too many. Overwhelming confusion replaces clarity. Memory goes. Humor and absorption on friends' faces are replaced by fear and concern. Everything previously moving with the grain is now against. You are irritable, angry, frightened, uncontrollable, and enmeshed totally in the blackest caves of the mind. You never knew those caves were there. It will never end, for madness carves its own reality. From An Unquiet Mind by Kay Redfield Jameson.
0: Hey. You guys remember when Britney Spears shaved her head?
1: Yeah, she went nuts. So embarrassing.
0: And Kanye's still out of control. I mean, he's gone full Nazi. That dude is seriously bipolar, man. Did you know Howie Mandel accidentally revealed his obsessive compulsive disorder on The Howard Stern Show? And after the interview, he almost walked into traffic out of shame?
1: Yeah, he's like a big germaphobe or something.
0: What about Charlie Sheen's meltdown that lasted, like, forever? Yo, that was crazy. But, you know, at least he was winning. (laughs) When a celebrity has a full-blown meltdown, the media circus shifts into high gear, and supermarket tabloids exhaust themselves trying to capture every moment. When a mass shooting occurs, there's a pretty standard playbook. The left denounces promiscuous gun culture and calls for background checks and weapons bans. The right goes all in on mental health, and the cycle continues. A homeless individual has a mental break in a public arena, and cell phones capture every second of a human tragedy. When those afflicted with severe mental health issues suffer acute breakdowns, they become public property. We stand at a distance and gawk at the spectacle, and thank God it's not happening to us. In reality, mental illness is something that touches all of our lives. It's inescapable. The most severe public demonstrations merely serve to relieve us of any associated guilt or shame that comes from admitting this fact. To be precise, permit me to quote from the National Institute of Health. Quote, "...it is estimated that more than one in five U.S. adults live with a mental illness." 57.8 million in 2021. Mental illnesses include many different conditions that vary in degree of severity, ranging from mild to moderate to severe. Two broad categories can be used to describe these conditions. Any mental illness, AMI, and serious mental illness, SMI. AMI encompasses all recognized mental illnesses. SMI is a smaller and more severe subset of AMI, end quote. Now, before one can have a productive and informed conversation about mental illness, it's important to agree upon language and definitions. But here's the thing. The mind remains as unexplored and misunderstood as the ocean or maybe even the galaxy. There's more we don't know than can be claimed as certainty. So to be clear, I'm going to take a very careful and topical approach to this subject and stay within some pretty clear margins when speaking to conditions and care for us. This is a story about the failures of capitalism. Hard stop. But to make this case, we have to wade through some pretty complicated language and circumstances to understand why I can even make such a statement. To our international audience, I'm writing specifically about conditions and care in the United States specifically. While some of the history we review includes references to asylum care in the UK, and there are strong correlations between diagnoses and treatments in other parts of the world, the underlying thesis pertains strictly to the United States. I have sent to the Congress today a series of proposals to help fight
1: mental illness and mental retardation. These two afflictions have been long neglected. They occur more frequently, affect more people, require more prolonged treatment, cause more individual and family suffering than any other condition in American life.
0: Noted Portuguese doctor Antonio Muniz won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 1949 for developing a surgical technique that became known as the frontal lobotomy. Inspired by behavioral improvements in chimpanzees that had their frontal lobes removed, Moniz initially experimented with alcohol to dissolve parts of the brain. Later, he developed a wire loop instrument that traveled through holes in the skull that literally scraped matter fibers in the brain. Now, there were early signs of success that some claim Moniz oversold without revealing detrimental side effects, but the success was enough for the industry to proclaim his procedure somewhat of a miracle and it was added to the arsenal of physical and invasive treatments for a host of psychological disorders. For nearly two decades, the lobotomy procedure was practiced all over the world, often with disastrous results. Perhaps the most famous instance that impacted the trajectory of the mental health field in ways that are still felt to this day is that of Rosemary Kennedy, sister to the soon-to-be president of the United States, John F. Kennedy. Without consulting his family members, including his wife, Kennedy patriarch, Joseph Kennedy, enlisted Dr. Walter Freeman to perform the nascent procedure on his daughter, Rosemary. Rosemary was by all accounts a vivacious and engaging young woman with full control of her mental faculties. But as she grew out of adolescence, she began to exhibit signs of mental instability and volatility. This was too much for the image conscious Joe Kennedy to endure and so he had her lobotomized. Rosemary was awake during the procedure and speaking to the doctor and attending nurses, until she didn't. Freeman had gone too far, and the botched procedure left her incapable of speaking and barely able to move. Horrified by this turn of events, the Kennedy parents locked their daughter away in an institution. They didn't visit her for two decades. Eventually, Rosemary was reunited with her family and placed in residential care in a Wisconsin facility, where she remained until her death at the age of 86. Rosemary's tragic life inspired her brother to reform the mental health care system when he became president. The Kennedy family shame prompted a slew of legislation introduced under Kennedy with the most important objective passed just shortly before his assassination, to reform the system of asylums. Kennedy was determined to end the practice of forced institutionalization. He recognized the importance of community-based care and the failure of institutions to do much more than warehouse mentally ill people and keep them away from the rest of society. The origin of the word Bedlam is the most infamous mental hospital in history in Bethlehem, England, which was established in 1247. The Bethlehem Hospital housed the so-called criminally insane and was a rather small institution for hundreds of years, until the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. As author Misha Fraser Carroll writes in her book Mad World, quote, Firstly, the industrial revolution meant that mad and disabled people could no longer work or be cared for in the home, end quote. Centralizing factories and industrial production meant people were moving from feudal community-based agriculture jobs and trades to centralized urban centers with long hours, thus destroying the home and community balance humans had known throughout recorded history. But industrialization did more than just drive families apart. The work itself caused enormous stress that manifested in physical and mental issues. Poverty wages, poor working conditions, community bonds being fractured, everything that we knew about life on the earth abruptly changed, and so did our body and mind chemistry. The Industrial Revolution also ushered in tremendous population growth, and with the growth of the population came the need to accommodate the growing percentage of sick people. As Carol writes, quote, As more asylums were built, more people would fill them. When they continued to expand to accommodate for this, they would once again become overrun. By the end of the 19th century, there were more than 100,000 people living in the county pauper asylums, all of which were compulsory patients detained by the state and were less likely to be released than prisoners. So now importantly, she's talking about the UK specifically, but this is a pattern that played out all over the developing world. In order to cover the expense of these growing facilities, many of them, Bethlehem included, opened up the facilities as attractions and would charge visitors to gawk at the inmates. Behind closed doors, the treatments these wards of the state were subjected to were often horrific and barbaric. It wasn't until the Quakers began experimenting with humane care that the psychiatric industry started moving away from torture and restraint. But the population growth was too much to make this sustainable in all parts of the world and so many asylums fell into disrepair and became overcrowded. Even the best intentions couldn't cover for the sheer volume of care that was required for an increasingly sick population. Before the advent of pharmaceuticals and other breakthroughs in treatments and understanding of disorders in the 20th century, asylums remained the primary mode of treatment for patients with mental illnesses. Depending upon resources and population density, the level of care varied dramatically, as there was little continuity in approach to care and many resembled little more than prisons. President Kennedy envisioned a two-pronged approach to changing the nature of care. Importantly, his administration's proposals followed on the heels of breakthroughs in pharmacology, which helped advance the psychiatric profession beyond the theoretical realm of figures like Freud and the brutality of asylum care. Many of the drugs that were released in the 50s held great promise for mitigating some of the most severe conditions. In a short period of time, a great sense of optimism came over the profession, which allowed the political class to rethink compulsory incarceration of those suffering from mental illness. The first part of the concept was to shutter the large institutions that housed the most severe inpatient cases. The second part of the plan to occur simultaneously was to replace the centralized facilities with decentralized community-based centers that could provide a balance of drug therapies with inpatient and outpatient care that allowed families to stay closer to loved ones as they pursued treatment. So a few things happened after Kennedy's assassination that unraveled the plan over time. Funding for community centers stalled even though the first part of the plan to decommission centralized asylums began in earnest. Then, Kennedy's successor, Lyndon Johnson, amended the Social Security Act to exclude hospital care for mental health patients in an effort to incentivize the dismantlement of the asylum system. So while the unraveling of centralized care was accelerated, the community health system remained in limbo thus creating a gap in care and crisis for families left with few options to manage difficult and extreme cases. As a Time magazine article points out, the miracle drugs introduced in the 50s proved less miraculous than first hoped. Less than half of the community centers Kennedy envisioned were ever built, though 90% of patient beds in large state mental health hospitals were eliminated." End quote. The United States would linger in this sort of treatment purgatory with experimental drugs and procedures, a declining number of beds, and general confusion throughout the 60s and 70s. And then at the very end of the Carter administration, the Carter team attempted to address what had developed into a full-blown crisis by signing the Mental Health Systems Act, which was essentially an attempt to actualize Kennedy's original vision of expanding community-based care. A feature in Salon chronicles the fate of the bill. Quote, consistent with the report of the Carter Commission, the act also included a provision for federal grants for projects for the prevention of mental illness and the promotion of positive mental health, an indication of how little learning had taken place among the Carter Commission members and professionals at the National Institute of Mental Health. With President Reagan and the Republicans taking over, the Mental Health Systems Act was discarded before the ink had dried, and the Community Mental Health Center funds were simply block-granted to the states. The CMHC program had not only died, but had been buried as well." So the article makes two critical points. The first is that despite Carter's attempts to reinvigorate community care, the political class still largely misunderstood the nature of mental illness and the type of research and funding required to build modes of care and experimental drug therapies. And the other part is the Reagan connection. Most of the time, when I dig into a topic, I start by addressing my own biases and work backwards from there. And in this instance, I had a long-held assumption that somehow, Ronald Reagan was responsible for destroying the mental health care industry and threw mentally ill citizens into the streets. This turns out to be partially true, but as usual, there's so much more to the story. So despite the fact that Ronald Reagan was nearly assassinated by a mentally ill person, he had remarkably little interest in understanding mental illness. But that's an aside. What Reagan did was convert the funding proposed by Carter for community centers specifically into block grants for the states. Now block grants are notorious for misappropriation because the standards for accepting and implementing them are typically pretty low. Meaning the funds are often misallocated and misaligned from their intended purpose and kind of washed into the general fund. They also come with strings. Federal block grants are great for projects that don't require ongoing funding and maintenance. So think about like infrastructure block grants, for example. These are far more popular and easier for state legislators to digest because they're more one and done than a healthcare facility, as an example. So even though the funding was available, not all the states were interested in taking it. Moreover, there was little consistency in the direction and application of the funding, so of those that were implemented, the outcomes were kind of wide-ranging and totally inconsistent. As Dr. Kenneth Paul Rosenberg writes in his book Bedlam, quote, of the 2,000 community mental health centers proposed to replace the demolished asylums, only half wound up being built, and those were only partly funded. By the 1980s, fewer than 100 of the outpatient community mental health centers that were built to solve America's mental illness crisis remained, end quote. The list of disorders listed in what's referred to as the DSM, including the most recent version DSM-5, is voluminous.
1: Neurodevelopmental disorders,
0: schizophrenia spectrum and other psychotic disorders,
1: bipolar and related disorders,
0: depressive disorders,
1: anxiety disorders,
0: obsessive compulsive and related disorders,
1: trauma and stressor related disorders,
0: disassociative disorders,
1: somatic symptom disorders,
0: feeding and eating disorders,
1: elimination disorders,
0: sleep wake disorders
1: sexual dysfunctions,
0: gender dysphoria,
1: disruptive impulse control and conduct disorders,
0: substance use and addictive disorders,
1: neurocognitive disorders,
0: personality disorders,
1: and paraphilic disorders.
0: The DSM is the psychiatric industry bible. It's updated every few years to incorporate new concepts and covers all types of disorders, and it will likely be updated further in years to come as we begin to grapple with the long-term effects of COVID. As the World Health Organization reported, quote, "...in the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic, global prevalence of anxiety and depression increased by a massive 25 percent, according to a scientific brief released by the WHO," End quote. While I'm not qualified to delve much further into the actual world of mental health and the nature of mental illness, this is a story about capitalism and politics— So I want to share a passage from Mad World that helps illustrate the difficulty of even attempting to classify disorders and ascribe therapies and treatments.
1: Mental health awareness places responsibility for fixing madness and mental illness on individuals by suggesting that if people have the correct knowledge about symptoms and how to address them, we can then solve this crisis among ourselves. The knowledge we are given to name and describe our struggles is usually psychiatric knowledge. Meanwhile, cure is framed as a clear and steady path as long as we are willing to try going to health services, taking our medication, paying for therapy, practicing self-care, taking up mindfulness, eating better, getting regular exercise, having an active social life, or anything on the expanding list of practices that are promised to help us recover. While many of these things may make people feel better, an exclusive focus on these individual actions overlooks the fact that they don't work for everything and the road to recovery is rocky, complex, or even impossible for many of us in our current conditions. It frames ongoing distress as a personal failure to self-discipline or seek out appropriate services, rather than acknowledging the structural conditions that also dictate our lives. This approach aligns perfectly with neoliberal ideology, which emphasizes free market competition, decreased state spending, and increased personal responsibility.
0: Thank you, 99. I'll cap this with a profound statement from Dr. Rosenberg who said, quote, mental illness doesn't just happen in a vacuum. There's a progression of illness exacerbated by life's stresses during which the smoldering brain erupts into an all out five alarm fire, end quote. So, in speaking in these terms, you can kind of begin to appreciate the difficulty in tackling mental illness as a society. I mean, is it biological? Something in our DNA? Is it environmental in both ways, meaning exposure to neurotoxins as well as daily work and life stresses? Is it folly to search for a cure? Where do the rights of patients begin and where do they end? I mean, is it okay to strip someone of their civil liberties if they pose a danger to themselves? What about a danger to others? The recent rise in homelessness and violent crime following COVID prompted states like New York and California to assume antiquated and draconian postures toward the unhoused. Plainly speaking, the public outcry left officials feeling as though they had no choice but to detain people involuntarily. Of course, without beds and facilities and protocols for care, that just meant that people were deposited into the carceral system, which only serves to exacerbate the stresses that likely placed them in a precarious life position in the first place. And that's why Carol's words really resonate with me. The first step to developing a coordinated system of care that can be replicated successfully and iterated upon when new breakthroughs occur is recognizing that mental illness is not something to be cured. It's something to be treated, to be cared for. Now, this simple sentiment elucidates the protocol moving forward. Holistic systems of care that reduce environmental stresses with prescribed combinations of therapies to achieve a balance that allows a patient to function then hopefully thrive. As Rosenberg states, this looks like, quote, consistent and comprehensive care provided by a team of doctors, nurses, public defenders, caseworkers, licensed counselors, and the judge. An approach that's called wraparound care. Whether we like it or not, jails, Judges and law enforcement are already intimately involved in overseeing and managing mental health care. And it's critical to know how to leverage the law for treatment, not punishment, end quote. Okay, so... Understanding that wraparound care, rather than searching for a cure, is paramount to crafting solutions, we can more clearly see how our capitalist structure poses an enormous barrier. First off, there's the inexorable link between the pressure a capitalist system places on its citizens. Again, Carol, quote, our mental health cannot be disentangled from the intertwined systems of white supremacy, ableism, gendered oppression, imperialism, and capitalism. All forms of what we call illness, or suffering, interact with the political world, a world that is particularly deadly for certain body minds, end quote. By introducing related structural ills such as racism, Carol demonstrates just how layered and complicated the discussion can be. We've talked about this before when speaking about the concept of weathering, coined by Dr. Arlene Geronimus at the University of Michigan in the 90s. Weathering describes the phenomenon of premature aging due to repeated exposure to stressful social factors like racism. So, Carol offers an example from a UK study that found Black Caribbean people are nine times more likely to be diagnosed as schizophrenic than white people in the UK. Quote Notably, this extremely high rate of diagnosis in the UK has not been replicated in the Caribbean suggesting that these rates are more to do with the social and political experiences of black British people, end quote. Now, in purely economic terms, Carol writes about workers in what she describes as precarious fields. For example, quote, Hospitality workers experience the highest reported levels of workplace stress out of any industry, and those who rely on tips are at a particularly high risk of depression and sleep problems. These occupational hazards are exacerbated by emotional labor, the process of having to control, mask, and split off certain emotions when faced with customer hostility or even sexual harassment, which disproportionately affects women in the service industries, end quote. Now, for my critics who suggested I spent too much time talking about socialist theory, there's a construct for this, Marx's theory of alienation. But I digress. So it's in these structural ways that capitalism contributes to the inputs of mental disorder. On the flip side, it only deepens the crisis by failing to compensate for the outputs, or in other words, care. In following the neoliberal belief system that markets will cure all, we've privatized care in this country and allowed for for for-profit organizations to step into the role of government. As a result, some aspects of care have developed in counterintuitive ways to how we even think about capitalist structures. For example, in allowing the free market to develop drug therapies, we have destroyed and disincentivized competition. So in Bedlam, Dr. Rosenberg quotes Richard Friedman, MD, director of psychopharmacology at the Payne-Whitney Psychiatric Clinic, who says, quote, The risk-averse pharmaceutical industry takes a known compound with a known mechanism of action and modifies it just slightly to get a, quote, new drug. So you have lots and lots of what we call Me Too drugs that are new. They're patented, but they work on exactly the same targets as the old drugs. And as Dr. Friedman explains, we have decided to leave most of the research, development, and testing of medications to the for-profit pharmaceutical industry, rather than to the NIMH or other government agencies, end quote. Then, of course, we have the personal financial part of the equation. Most people in need of wraparound care just can't afford to avail themselves of such services, even in parts of the country where it is available. Attempts to ameliorate this circumstance have proven effective, however, and offer a glimmer of hope. Both the Affordable Care Act and the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act of 2010 have promoted coverage for individuals for basic psychosis services and to prevent discrimination by insurance companies against mental health patients, respectively. But it's a drop in the bucket of what's required if we don't backstop this with community facilities, wider long-term coverage, and research and development into new therapies and modalities of care. The free market approach to mental health care is as disastrous as letting citizens go without basic care for physical and more obvious health issues. But because mental illness isn't as visible, unless it's on full display in the form of a violent homeless person in the streets, we fool ourselves into believing it's not as prevalent or as destructive. It's why we fight for greater equity. See, this is an all of us problem, not a some of us problem. There are aspects of society that can't be cured by the free market, and in many cases, the free market is perhaps the root of the problem, or at least gasoline on the fire of the mind. It's also a stark reminder that what we have today isn't even a capitalist society as Adam Smith would have envisioned. Recall that the tenets of Smith's capitalism were to release the forces of markets to enrich society and to pay for that which the market cannot provide such as welfare, art, music, and education. The success of a society can't be judged by how well it performs for those in the upper echelon of the economic stratosphere, but by how well it compensates for those who exist in all other levels. A healthy society starts with an understanding of the distinction between markets and governance, and where the responsibilities between and among them truly lie. If we can begin to reconcile these concepts, perhaps we can take the first step in realizing the unfulfilled promise of Rose Kennedy's tragedy and rewrite the American story, a story that doesn't strive for a happy ending, but a fulfilling and healthy journey, as that may be all that's possible in the complicated world of mental health. After all, a nation is only as strong as its people. Here ended the lesson.
1: It's the end of the episode where we used to do
0: show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post show musings. Welcome into Post Show Musings, everybody. This is a prime example of more wound up on the cutting room floor than made it into the episode, uh, but also an example of the effort that I'm trying to make to be really focused and disciplined when it comes to putting these things together. This world, this field of mental health care is... I mean, there are so many ways that you can attack it and, and, and try to dissect it, but I think it actually... When I read Carol's words and then when I read Bedlam and started reading and researching a number of other articles, this idea that there is no cure actually kind of let me off the hook in a way. Like It it freed my mind to just really focus on the discipline of this exercise, which is to talk about the economic structures that contribute to this and why the structure that we have it right now, as we have it right now, is not capable of contributing in a positive way to better outcomes for people who suffer from mental illnesses. So I appreciate those resources and and the books uh, that are going to be listed here for you to take a look at. I would encourage you to read both Bedlam and Mad World if you're interested in the subject matter. Uh, Also, An Unquiet Mind, uh, which is what we quoted from in the very beginning, that has been suggested to both 99 and I from listeners, and it's also something 99 was already familiar with.
1: That's not true, actually. Bobby McDi uh, told me about it.
0: That was the first time you heard of that one? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Well, that gives me an opportunity to um, to dig into the heart of post-show musings, which is a special one today, because as uh, most of you probably know, if you listen to show notes and you listen to our banter, uh, mental health care is near and dear to 99's heart. And uh, I'd asked her permission to have kind of an expanded discussion in post-show musings about her own... About her own feelings on the matter and some of her personal experiences with the subject, um, not because I wanted to put her on the spot or ex- or expose anything, that, but she's extremely open uh, and communicative when it comes to this this subject. Because I, as she's expressed to me before, it helps people. It helps people to, to to air this out, and also it destigmatizes the subject because it's not something of shame. It's something that, as we know, really does affect a lot of people. So, um, first of all, let me just start by thanking you for being willing to engage in a in a next level discussion about this and and be open and let me start by asking you um first and foremost
1: what my therapist's name is
0: <laughs> anything that would be disclosed on your uh personal identifiable information <laughs> sheet at the therapist yes uh by asking you to kind of share a little bit of of your journey to the extent you're comfortable in not what you deal with, but in the system.
1: Okay, that's interesting. So I've been in therapy for, I think, five, only five years now. It feels like a lifetime to me. Um, it was offered to me when I was younger, but I didn't... I was like a stubborn kid and I didn't want to talk to somebody. But, you know, if I could go back and tell myself, hey, you should take that up earlier. But it was always sort of like a scary intangible thing. What is therapy? What do I do? What do I say? How do I find one? And that was the biggest struggle for me for so long was finding someone to take my insurance who I wanted someone who would get me. You know, I didn't want a man. I prefer to see female doctors for the most part because I feel more comfortable with women. And so that was a that was a barrier. I wanted somebody. Obviously, I can't ask people this, but I wanted somebody who maybe was a little liberal so I could talk about my feelings about the world because I don't want to feel like I have to stifle because I think my therapist is a Republican, you know? So that was that was the hardest part for me was finding one. And I went back for, for years and years and years figuring out what's the right fit for me. And it actually even eventually came word of mouth from a friend who was seeing People at a specific practice near us, and I made an appointment and got matched with my therapist. And thankfully, was very lucky that we hit it off, as therapists and clients go. And I've been with her ever since. And you know, we we joke about being a a therapy a therapy couple until I'm famous one day. She said, "I'll, "I'll take I'll take her with me." So we have a good, close relationship, but healthy professional boundaries.
0: Okay, so that's the talk therapy side of this, which you yes. came to actually rather late, considering
1: being anxious think, and depressed my whole life. <laughs>
0: well, I I think from what I understand, is it fair to say that you were aware that you struggled emotionally, even even before? So one of the things that I, I found in the, in the research is that a lot of the um, a lot of the more severe conditions that Um, really hold people back from functioning, quote-unquote functioning in society, reveal themselves uh, after adolescence and and, and when they become young adults. But this is something that you, I think, recognized in adolescence. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. So I've, I had severe anxiety as a child, separation anxiety, just I couldn't sleep all the time, scared I was, my house was going to burn down. People were going to break in that, that kind of, I don't know what, what you would call it. But I mean, generalized anxiety disorder is what I'm diagnosed with, but it was, it was really bad. And definitely, I I think when I was younger, more anxious than depressed, as I was older, they became, they held hands. Um, I guess I left out because I honestly wasn't even thinking about it, was that I I started, I, I, I sort of started seeing a therapist in college through the school. So I, I saw one At my old school that I transferred and never saw her again, sometimes I wonder, she was like, what happened to that girl? Um, Then I started seeing one at my my other school, which wasn't very helpful, but it helped me get on meds. So that was why I was able to regulate so well, I mean, realistically, so quote unquote, so well until I needed to be in therapy because meds aren't the only solution. They're just part of it. So I was on meds for about four years before I started seeing a therapist. I had them uh, prescribing my GP.
0: Another thing I found interesting in both... Well, uh, no, I don't know if this is the case in Mad World. In Bedlam, the author, who is a a psychiatrist, I believe, yeah, talks about his relationship with other uh, professionals in the industry that he's met along the way and remarked uh, repeatedly how often... They came to the profession because of a personal connection to mental illness, a sibling, a parent, somebody in their family, uh, oftentimes the most extreme cases of somebody that had, could not function and then ultimately took their, their life. But how many of them hid that fact through school and even in their profession itself? And his the point of him pointing that out is that even among professionals who do this for a living, who interact with it, who people know are surrounded by this and it's all they think about, they internalize the shame and the stigma that comes along with mental illness. So I I guess my question for you is, how did your family think about this, support you, hide it, talk about it? How did you also then was it, was it stigmatized for you? Was it something that you trying to suppress and hide and keep from your friends or families or colleagues or co-workers? And like, w- w- how did your family interpret what your struggles were?
1: I probably started it and didn't tell them just because I wasn't sure.
0: But that's in college, right? Yeah. So but I was. you demonstrated a high level of anxiety prior to that, right? And you had, you know, maybe leading to depression before you had gone off to college.
1: We just didn't really talk about it. Like it was just who I was. It wasn't like a thing. We didn't mm. co- we didn't do coping skills because, I mean, <laughs> I think I could say this. Uh, we have other mental illnesses in the family. You know, it's genetic. So other people experience anxiety and depression in my family.
0: It may be genetic.
1: Uh, I, I, there's some that are pretty. I'm, I'm pretty sure they're confirmed or genetic. Like ADHD is like if you have one parent with ADHD, you're almost guaranteed to get it.
0: I just learned from putting this together that, you know, you have to put modifiers in almost everything because there are no
1: absolutes in this industry. That's so, fair. <laughs> but so it was just sort of who I was. And it was, we we modified around it. Like I used to be terrified if I was taking the bus to school and I I needed to take the subway to the bus. You know, my sister would like take the subway with me and drop me off at the bus. Or they would like drop me off right at the bus somewhere. I have a lot of bus anxiety from college, so that's a separate one day. I'll have to unpack how much I fucking hate buses, (laughs) but uh, things like that. And, you know, friends, I'd be on the phone everywhere I went. That was another big one. That was when my, my anxiety got really bad when I was a freshman in college. And I, it was, it sort of, it was spawned, it got bad because of a situation. And then I sort of, in essence, didn't recover from that level of anxiety. But like everywhere I went, I felt like people were talking about me, looking at me, laughing at me. Mm. So I constantly, I had to be on the phone or I had to be with somebody. I would barely eat because I didn't want to be in the dining hall alone, mm. things like that. So that's when that's when I started pursuing it. But I just lost my train of thought. Well, no, I,
0: it's what we're talking about, the, the stigma attached to it and support yes. systems. And-
1: so I probably... Or I, it's hard, it's been a while now, but I probably pursued it without telling my parents just because, I don't know, sometimes you just don't tell them things when you're doing something on your own until you have it figured out. And you open
0: with 101?
1: I don't know. I don't remember. Um, I do that sometimes though, where if I'm like, if I'm going to a doctor's appointment or something, if, I don't know, if there's something I was worried about, I probably will handle it by myself. And then after when I have answers... Because I don't want to make other people feel anxious waiting for me. That's just a thing I would okay. do. So I, I might have I might have just taken on by myself. Um, but I was open with friends at the time, you know, who were, you would sort of like get a hint. Someone would say something. You'd be like, are you are you on meds? And they'd be like, yeah. And I'm like, I'm on meds. What med are you on? And then you talk. But
0: I had a doctor uh, who uh, after an exam and doing some blood work told me that I had, uh, he's like, I'm pretty sure you have lymphoma. And, um, so I'm going to want you to like immediately get this, uh, full body scan. And, uh, I didn't tell anybody until I got the results back from the scan. I came home and I just told my wife, I was like, I don't have lymphoma. She's like, okay, cool. Well, why would you even bring that up? And then told her after the fact. So I, I, I get that. Like, yeah, just like, you know, cause it's not real. It's not real until
1: it's real. Yeah. 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 Why, why bother? Yeah. Why bother people? Um, I mean, I, uh, my therapist would say, no, they're there to support you because you would do the same for them. And I go, I know, but that doesn't make it better. Um, but then after college I was doing okay. I was stable for a little bit, like as far as the stability goes and then, you know, meds stopped working. So I need to up- increase them then. Okay. This med isn't working at all. New med. Okay. This med, my insurance stopped carrying. Different med, then it's like okay, this one's not working. I need to see a psychiatrist. So that's sort of how I got there. But between all of those, now we're talking about
0: wraparound, right? So I I I think it's important to make the distinction between psychology and psychiatry. Just because I don't, I don't, I don't want to necessarily take that for granted. Your, Your psychologist can be part, should be part of the discussion, right?
1: I don't have a psychologist. I only have a psychiatrist. I have a psychiatrist and a therapist, a licensed mental sorry, health and therapist. I, and I'm
0: saying therapist as a psychologist, and they're, they're not always the same thing. Right? No. Okay. So your, but so your therapist can't prescribe, right? Yes. Um. But that person works collaboratively with the psychiatrist.
1: They, uh, they did talk, uh, at the beginning of my sessions with my with, I started seeing my psychiatrist. My therapist talked to her just to kind of give her, like, here's the spiel. These are what her diagnoses are. Just kind of backstopping me. You know, some some people, there's always a little bit of fear that, like, this person might not believe me. And, you know, that's scary. You don't want to have to, like, advocate for yourself in that type of scenario. So, not that my psychiatrist, she wasn't like, I don't believe you. Mm-hmm. I, it just was, like, a comfort thing to me. Um, but they don't really talk to each other. They're not the same practice or anything, like, in the same company. So when I see my psychiatrist, she asks how my sessions are going, what am I working on, and then when I have seen my psychiatrist and I'm in therapy, she asks, you know, well, what did what did your psychiatrist say? Are you keeping the treatment the same? Oh, that sounds like it'll work for you. Oh, is there any new things? Like, I I actually I feel really lucky with my psychiatrist because <laughs> I have fights with a friend who her psychiatrist will call her and she'll, she'll he'll be like, how are you? And she'll be like, fine and he's like all right and i'm like mm. that's not how psychiatry works like it shouldn't just be a box checked it should be it should be a conversation because my psychiatrist is very dialed into like my hormones my my emotions how the seasons affect me how i have allergies so like how foods may inflame my brain like we're you know she's always like researching new stuff with with her team mm. And I mean, she's not like a like in the lab or anything, but they're always like reading up new papers and everything. So I feel very lucky with my care team. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, they don't like work together like let's consult after every whatever amount of time.
0: It's interesting. The um, There was a, a long section delving more into the weeds about diagnoses that talked about uh, the role of inflammation and um, neurotoxicity, m- meaning the longer... A condition goes untreated, the more your body will release hormones to compensate for it, like dopamine and uh, and other, I don't know whatever those things are considered. Serotonin and serotonin, and that those things themselves actually in in larger amounts for a sustained period of time have a deleterious effect on the brain, and so neurotoxicity contributes to uh, decline in in a lot of patients that that remain untreated. So. Let me ask you this, if it's not a bridge too far. You in a, let's say, in a extremely rural environment in the gig economy, so a lot of America, without a support system, insurance, and access to individualized care in person in a way that we are in, in the setting that we live in here. What do you think your path would have looked like thus far.
1: I mean, did I go to college in this scenario?
0: I, I don't know. I don't know. Sure.
1: So I was, when I was in college, I was on the college insurance. My parents took me off of my personal insurance uh, or their insurance because they just didn't have great care at the time or coverage rather. So I was able to get free mental health resources through school. And I was able to see uh, a counselor and uh, a nurse practitioner who was the one who, she was honestly, she was more like a psychiatrist. I got more value out of our relationship than the counselor at the school. They're, it's a weird, th- that's a weird system there. It's not the same at every school, but they're like, you're only allowed 10 sessions. And I'm like, that's so arbitrary. But, that, but you could also then like, if I say I'm depressed, I have 10 sessions to cover my depression. And then if I was like, I'm actually anxious to be like, all right, 10 more. It's very weird. I mean, you just
0: go down the list. Yeah,
1: yeah. exactly. <laughs> we can make this last yeah. <laughs> all year. Um, but but I was that was a saving grace for me. So with that, I was personally able to like take my prescription and be like, I already have a prescription for this to my GP. That's a that's a workaround. If you didn't go to college, I I don't know. You're on Obamacare and you have m- middling expensive coverage. Maybe you have a decent enough copay. Maybe you're lucky enough to find a GP who believes you enough because, you know, my GP was a little lax and she was like, all right, I I don't care. You know, maybe you should see a therapist one day. And I was like, I'll try. And, you know, I said that until I did. Um, But otherwise, it's it's really it's really hard out there. One thing we were talking about yesterday is there has been a rise in digital coverage or digital providers, Um, not the text. Talk space and not the Better Helps that are kind of conniving and, you know, advertising all your podcasts, but actual providers that do telehealth therapy. And I do think that's helped the access portion of it. Whether they take your insurance, whether they take insurance. I mean, I, I one of my best friends, she pays like, I don't know, like 200 bucks every session. I, I couldn't do that. And she has insurance. It's just she has. Wow. It's just the way her plan is set up. Yeah. So I don't know what these people do. Like, if they're lucky enough to find someone to believe them, to give them medicine. But a lot of people aren't so lucky, or don't even know where to start.
0: What is? Um, can you describe what it's like to spiral?
1: Well, I mean, for me, I yeah, I can only speak from my personal yeah. experience. Um it depends on which type of spiral it is. Okay. My anxiety spirals are very you know it's it catastrophizing into a panic attack essentially. So you know you send me a message to say well, I need to talk to you at the end of the day. Okay, I'm getting fired. I'm getting fired. I'm getting fired. What do I do? How could this happen? What do you mean? What did I do? It's everyone hates me. This is a conspiracy. And then I start panicking, and then I'm crying, and then maybe I have to go home, you know? Mm -hmm. That's what an anxiety spiral might look like. A depression spiral is scarier because I don't know that it's happening until it has already happened, where slowly I just have less energy. I have no desire to feed myself, to shower, to clean my room, to get out of bed, to wake up, but also to go to sleep. I can't sleep, but I want to sleep all the time. And so then I go to sleep late, and then I end up sleeping all day. And then... Um, I also have, I have something called PMDD, which is uh, a premenstrual dysmorphic disorder. I always forget what the D's are, but I basically have, it's like PMS extreme. So it's a huge, it's something I didn't get diagnosed with till later in life. And I basically felt like I wanted to die three weeks out of the month. I just never, I just didn't want to be here. And I thought that was normal. And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know it wasn't until... A friend actually told me she got diagnosed, and I was like, that's exactly what my symptoms sound like. And I, you know, went to an OB and my therapist at the time, and I got that diagnosis, but it was like it was really hard for me because that I think having like a hormonal reaction is you you have no control over it. Right. You know, your body is just telling you like you don't want to do this, and it takes it takes control and everything feels stupid and you're angry and then you're sad and then you're crying and then you want to go to sleep and then you're numb. And then in, you, then you have one week of the month where you feel great and everything's better. And then then the next week it slowly starts to creep back in. That's like disorienting. Yeah. Especially when I, I wasn't taking, I wasn't taking medication for it. So the options are kind of either. So if, if I, I'll, I'll be a little more detailed, it's fine. Um, so like, I take an SNRI instead of an SSRI. So one worse than serotonin, one worse than norepinephrine. So I am I was on the SNRI. That doesn't cover, like the, the drug itself, the medicine itself doesn't help PMDD. It doesn't affect the same bra- receptor in your brain that counteracts PMDD. So you can either be on that or be on like hormonal birth control. So I tried... Or you can you can either be on an SSRI or hormonal, birth, or both birth control or both. So I was like, all right, I'm on an SRI, SNRI. Let well, me you try. You have
0: eight kids, so obviously it's the other. <laughs> yes, right? of yeah. course. I don't know if anybody knows that.
1: Right? Yeah, they are not many faces, though. <laughs> we don't share them. <laughs> um, so the SSRI, I tried that, and it was like going okay for a little bit, and but then I maxed out <laughs> the the top level of that. It was Zoloft. I mean, everyone takes <laughs> someone, Everyone takes something. So I maxed out the Zoloft, and I was like, all right, this isn't working. So I switched back to my old plan add in hormonal birth control and to get myself to feel like a normal, like person, because it is just, yeah.
0: But is that is so is that part of life now where you are going to reach the efficacy of a particular cocktail that you're on or whatever the mixture is, and then you got to shake it up and change it up?
1: Um, You know, that's how it was for my allergy meds. So mm-hmm. I've definitely capped out on those, and I have to change them around. Well, that's
0: how it is for chemotherapy, and that's how it, I mean. You know, we develop these these natural tolerances to them.
1: Yeah, I don't know. You know, the, I don't know the science behind it. I think, pers- like personally, the Zoloft wasn't strong enough for me, so that was like I was on. That was when last year I I took a leave of absence from our job because I was I was coming off of my other drug. That was the the withdrawal is like so severe. And I was basically unmedicated for a month. And it was like one of the hardest months of my life. Um, but I, I just, the Zoloft, even after doing all that, the Zoloft didn't, it just wasn't enough. So I had to cycle back onto Effexor is what I'm on now, the SNRI. So um, I hope not. I'm not at the top level of that. I, I'm high, I'm on a high dose, but um, there's always that room. And I, I don't know. I mean... I don't think it's that for everybody. I think it can be, but I think at least for me, my life changes, you know, different phases of my life. I needed different things. Like I needed an increase during COVID badly because, right. and I needed, I take clonopin as needed for, for panic and anxiety. Um, And I definitely, I needed that. I got that during, because I started just having panic attacks anytime someone was, had a COVID scare, I just, I would spiral and have a full, I was just, my body wouldn't work. My brain wouldn't work. I was crying. So I don't know. For me, I haven't reached that point yet to answer the question of like, of of that. But that's why I think it's important, you know, going back to having a good relationship with my psychiatrist and it's important we're, we're always checking in. Like, I feel like she really listens to me. And again, I'm extremely, I feel extremely privileged to have the two people I have um, on my team because I know they care about me. And like when I was going through it really badly, my psychiatrist, I came back one day and I was, I was feeling good. And she was like, I'm so happy to see you smile. Mm. And she really meant it because Mm. like, I hadn't smiled. I'd been crying through every session, but it was like the first time I'd been smiling in weeks. And, um, so that's why I think it's important to have a really good relationship or find someone who, Respects you and listens to you. If you can, again, it's not easy to find people. And if you don't, if you have one person who is doing an okay job, sometimes that's better than nothing. But who who listens to you and is really in tune with like what you need? Because if three you know three sessions in a row, I'm reporting my anxieties higher than normal. Like okay, let's check in. Maybe we need to. I, I take a supplemental anxiety med for my OCD also. So maybe that needs to be increased. You know, maybe we need to work on this. So I think it should be a balance just like anything else. Like if you were seeing a nutritionist, you might Mm -hmm. say, hey, this isn't working for me. I'm gaining too much weight or I'm losing too much weight. Okay, let's adjust your macros and micros and things that I don't understand. But just the same.
0: There was a a section of uh, Bedlam where he talks about the reluctance among prescribing um, psychiatrists to sometimes give uh, it, so this is for the most I- extreme cases of, uh, I want to say bipolar breaks and, and then also schizophrenia, which is what uh, was his personal experience and what brought him into the profession. Uh, but that there are drug therapies that really work wonders. I think they're given, um, uh, I think with shots now and they last like a month and the efficacy has proven to be, you know, pretty strong. So w- his point was, the idea of wraparound care for somebody with the most extreme extreme case of, let's say, schizophrenia, is such that you need eyes on that person to to see the very first inclination of behavioral changes, because the speed and depth to which the the behavior can change can be really destructive. So you're saying the reluctance for to take on those type of patients, even though we know the efficacy is there, is really from a liability perspective because. You can have eyes on and communication with that person for 27 straight days and you miss that sign on the 28th day because you went to Disneyland or whatever it is, or you needed a day off and the the systems of checks and balances just kind of falls apart for a minute. Uh, That person could, you know, could fall into a suicidal state just and it can happen in the blink of an eye. And he's saying that's one of the the issues with having a for-profit system trying to maintain a delicate balance of wraparound care like that in these most extreme cases um, because it's not realistic to think that, that's, that 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 can be supported outside of some sort of institutional system uh, that, it, that, that sort of mandates that type of coverage. Like you have to check in with me today or else you're getting a visit type of stuff. But I found that part of it fascinating as well is like how quickly it can change. Like you saying, you know, three sessions in a row, you know, crying in tears and no smiles. And that person is there and sees that and senses that and has to, has to intervene.
1: And for me, I mean, you know, those three sessions, when I'm going through um, a a med change, my psychiatrist likes to see me every week sometimes, Mm -hmm. which is expensive. Yeah. And, um, but I know, I know it's important, especially because some drugs, you know, you hear all the disclaimers, but like some drugs can increase the risk of suicide. Mm -hmm. And so, obviously her professional liability and responsibility and yep. duty. Yep. Um, and also I, I don't want that. So, um, there, there's that aspect, but like three sessions for me could be three weeks. It could be three months, mm-hmm. you know, for my friend, it might be, it might be six weeks mm-hmm. and you, you have as much of a responsibility, at least it sounds, no, this sounds like the sun's preachy. Um, how do I phrase it the way I want to? Like, I think when you get to a place where you're where you're feeling good enough to take care of yourself, so that's the caveat I'll say, because there are plenty of times when I've been in those places where I don't feel good enough. But when you're in those places, you have a, a duty to yourself to, to hold yourself accountable, I think. So if I know I can do this today, if I know I'm holding myself accountable, I'm feeling okay, but I know something's not working, like... You have, I think, we have a duty to ourselves as far as we can take that, to advocate and to tell and to to tell you know my psychiatrist, because you have to look out for yourself when you can, because if if I almost said my name, if today ninety nine mm-hmm. is okay, but she knows I've been more anxious than usual. What happens when tomorrow ninety nine? Is having a depressive episode and is now drowning in anxiety. Right. So there's that level of it that I think um is an important part, you know, of of the whole piece as well.
0: There are periods that I've known how long have I known you now? Five years? Is it four and a half, five years? Six. Is it six? I think so. Um there'll be stretches where in everyday normal conversation really i where i wouldn't perceive there to be any any other subtext to a basic conversation that could trigger something um and you could be smiling through the conversation and i joke with you because you'll just start leaking right the tears will just start flowing and you'll say no don't don't mind those they just come right that's one of the, the so that's a that's a physical tell that a lot of people may not have right in, in their, you know, when they're grappling with, with something that's of the mind, you are remarkably open. So what I want to say is uh, to just cut to the chase, cause you know, I have difficulty mm-hmm. with that is your openness about it is really positive for somebody who cares about you, you know. So you know I love you very deeply. You, in a, in your openness to have the conversation or to even say, "Hey, don't mind those tears. They just flow sometimes. I don't want it to make you uncomfortable or you willing to to be open about, "Hey, uh having a tough week right now. Do you mind if I do this or if I do that?" Your transparency is a gift to people that love you. But so many people do struggle with that. So the one thing that I've really come to appreciate about our relationship is that in your own quiet personal way you've destigmatized it for me as a friend and as somebody that loves you by sort of like letting me off the hook in the moment to and and re- by revealing hey this is what I'm going through right now and not making it weird you know what i mean so it's like it's a it's a powerful mechanism i think that I, I I would hope that other people have the the courage and the fortitude to do, but I imagine that that's actually kind of hard to get to that point in your life when you're revealing to somebody like, Hey, I'm a little fucked up right now. And here's how that looks. Um, so, you know, anyway, I just think it's a powerful thing that you've done. Is that, did it take you a while to get to, to be this person?
1: Yes, absolutely. I, Similar to what I was saying before about, you know, I don't want people to carry my baggage is I wasn't open at all. I was, I prided myself on being somebody who didn't lean on my friends in that way. And I I bottled everything up or I felt like I worked through it myself because I didn't want to be a burden. And that's a phrase, you know, we all have, I I call them like dirty words in in therapy. Like what are my list of dirty words? Um, So one of mine is burden, which is like when I use it, I know I'm I know I'm know doing a therapy wrong from saying I'm being a burden, but that took me a long time to, like I was saying, my friends want to be there for me and they they feel closer to me when I open up to them. So that was really hard, but I'm also privileged in that this is a workspace where mental health is valued and you are open to listen. And I wasn't, you know, we weren't always this close and I definitely, you know, I, I know exactly the first time I cried in front of you and I felt like it was... You know, okay, here I go opening the door to like my weaknesses and showing all my cards. That's mm-hmm. how I felt at first because I didn't know you like that, and especially for a woman and to a boss who's a man, it's it's very hard. And you know, there's a lot of workplaces that aren't kind to that. You know, so I'm sympathetic to people who feel like they ha- they have to have those guards up, but uh, it's not not just women who should you know destigmatize crying. The workplace happens all the time. Hey, bosses, sometimes you guys fucking suck and you're going to make your employees cry. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you got dumb bitch coworkers, that goes that's gender neutral bitch, who are going to make your life miserable and sometimes you cry. But sometimes you have great coworkers and great bosses who foster that and want to know about you and want to make sure you're in the right headspace. And I do think the pandemic helped leach a lot of that out into the in the mm, public of That's interesting. We're all we're all fucked right now. Yeah. The happiest person in the world can't be that happy right now mm. because this is a global trauma. We are experiencing a global trauma, unprecedented. He's you know, the word of the of the three years. Mm-hmm. And we have to look out for each other because people are alone in their houses, maybe with no support systems. You know, maybe they can't even social distance because they're immunocompromised. Like so many factors that happen that I think at least even, the boomeriest boomer anti. Sorry, I know our boomers get sensitive about that. <laughs> but the, you know, I think statistically, the boomers and whatever's left of like, the greatest generation would, they're not necessarily the most open mental health people. I think that's a pretty fair statement. Absolutely. Absolutely. So even the most of those groups must have had to take a think at some point during the pandemic, mm-hmm. say, you know, I'm not too happy. And this yeah. is, this feels different. So hopefully it's, it's more it's places are more open now about that, but you know, you made me
0: question my feelings as well. Your openness, uh, I think opened my mind to the possibility that um, I may be struggling in certain ways at certain periods of time where otherwise I just would have been like, I'm in a bad fucking mood um, without even realizing the toll that that's taking on everybody else. So to be able to, check yourself in a way that says, yeah, I'm in a really bad fucking mood, but it's coming from a different type of place. And then to reveal that to the people that love you and say, hey, I'm in a little bit of a fucking bad headspace. And I've done that to you now. I never would have said anything like that before I met you. Honestly, I never, I would have, I would have felt uh, way too vulnerable. Uh, my male ego would have been w- way too fragile to admit that like I have a little bit of darkness in me right now and I don't know what to do with it and it's uncomfortable. I've never felt the need to seek out, you know, anything on the outside, but I can tell you it's it's been an enormous relief to unburden myself. And then everybody else around you sort of gets it. And it's not just that throwaway, like, oh, he's in a bad fucking mood, clear a path. It's like, oh, there's more shit going on there, and maybe I should listen. Harder, more carefully to it.
1: Yeah, I feel yeah. like there's a it's common for
0: everybody around that person. Is e- the point,
1: exactly. Right? There's like a common. I feel like like a TV show or movie trope where like a guy is mean to another guy and he yells back, and they're like, "You don't know what he's going through." And it's like, "Well, you know what? It's not my responsibility to know what everyone's going through all the time if they're going to take it out on me." Because right. at a certain point, you can't weaponize. Obviously, it happens. What right. you take out your bad mood on somebody, mm-hmm. you apologize. Hopefully, that's not a pattern. We all do it. Yep. It happens, yep. but. You, you can't weaponize your sadness, your anger, because that's just not fair. Punish yourself all you want by not doing something about it if you're able to, but don't punish other people because that's how we break walls down. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sometimes it's even, you know, there are people we work with, they get they get the look in their eyes <laughs> or they, they do something and they have some sort of verbal tell, like you were saying, that it's like, Okay, like they're, mm-hmm. they've got something going on and maybe they're not there yet to share that level of, hey, not great, you know, but that's what also, you know, friendship and being co- I mean, co-workers shouldn't really be beholden, but we don't, we have, a, as much as we rail against it, we have a a close, a, a small group of people with familial bonds in our office. Mm-hmm. Not everybody, mm-hmm. just a, a close group. So I say that with caveats that we're all family here is bullshit, and you know you don't know. Oh, your employer's everything, yep. but um, you know we have a close group of of people who respect each other as friends to know that. But hopefully, everybody gets to that place one day where they can just say. I got something going on. And maybe if it's work-related, I can fucking help.
0: I do worry about the isolation of the gig economy and the isolation of remote work and the isolation of the fracture of society coming out of COVID. I remember my, my best friend's wife is a PA... And uh, was right there in the throes of COVID in a city hospital and, and seeing literally death and destruction. And right after the fact, I mean, like, you know, uh, like bodies outside of the morgue. Right. Because it was a capacity kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, wearing the, what are they called? PPC? PPC? I think uh, are. PPE. <laughs> PPE, um, you know, 24-7, doing the showers when she got home, leaving the stuff in the garage, like really in the thick of it. And I had asked her kind of right on the heels of the worst part of it, like, you know, what are you thinking about this? What are you seeing about this? And she said, I'm concerned about the, and this is not a sensitive person. Let me (laughs) just say that she is what you would consider as tough as fucking nails. She's got a very hard exterior uh, until you break that shell. And she said, I'm very, very concerned about um, the mental health among uh, the youth in our country. And I said, like, okay, uh, they should fare better through this COVID. She goes, no, no th- there's there's things happening, and I'm just seeing the beginning stages of it. I'm seeing expressions of loneliness, sadness, and sadness and isolation come through uh, the emergency room, and we don't have the capacity to treat these people or the knowledge how to treat these people. And it really struck me at that moment, like, okay, so we uh, we're gonna birth a whole next level mental health care crisis. Among a young population with an older population that doesn't have the wherewithal to understand it or treat it and and what have you. and um, So anyway, I I think that that's being borne out by statistics and what we're all doing. These conversations, I think, are really really validating and important to continue having because there's a sense that like it's over. COVID's over. That's a wrap. Get your shit together. Everybody back to the grind. It's right? not over. We have a we have a fucking, you know, like uh, the supply chain's fixed. Everybody back to work. Everybody back to the office. Everybody right. back to you. And we're like, we have we, a lot of wounded warriors out there right now. Yeah,
1: it might be endemic, but it's still there. I had COVID not that long ago, but I don't know, four months ago. It's spiking. Variants are, are still mutating. You can I can get it again. I could get long COVID anytime I get it. Like that anxiety still lives for me. Yeah. You know, even saying PPE triggered me a little bit because I was like, I went back into my brain like, what's the name of it? Oh, okay, COVID. Um, And yeah, we have a loneliness, loneliness epidemic for sure. I think that's happening. I think there are so many reasons that's happening. COVID aside, I think fucking dating apps mm-hmm. because it's hard to meet people. So we have a group of, you know, young to middle-aged people who are maybe single and lonely and don't know how to meet people. We have social media as much as I'm a fan of social media for connection, for enjoyment, for entertainment, for all of the purposes, it's fucking draining us of everything we have. It and seems a
0: lot easier to fuck these days, though. Uh, I will say that it, 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 the the people that I know that are of my age that got divorced and they go on these social dating apps, they just seem to be able to fuck whenever they want. Are they men? That's interesting.
1: Are you talking to men?
0: I'm talking to men who are fucking women. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So well, there's women a, on the other side of the app that are yes, accepting. That's it,
1: That's right fair, now. but as a, as a woman <laughs> on the other side is a man who might want to kill me. So there's that <laughs> aspect of it yes. for me. Yes. So you know,
0: yeah, more anxiety.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't know who's gonna be a psycho. I don't know who. Like, there I'm saying the word psycho, which is wrong because we're just talking about mental illness and. You know, I should know better, but I don't know who's a person that has ill ill intent and wants to roofie my drink or Mm. mug me. And there's, you know, crazy shit.
0: Still a thing. Very much a thing. Yeah. Like really happening. Yes. My daughter knows not, not a person, several people that have been roofied at college. I'm like, what? What? It's really, it's, it's really obscene. Yeah. Anyway, I'm totally off topic uh, because I took it into a tawdry place. Um, And we're, we we should probably, we should probably wrap this up. I can pretty much guarantee that this will, even though this, I didn't go too deep into the episode and I really tried to keep a very strict framing. I kind of knew coming into post-show musings that it would, I think, I think people want to have this discussion and are going to be very open to it. And I think that we'll get a lot of feedback from it. So there's revealing it with you and me and in, in a studio when you don't really see it. But once it's out there in the universe, you know, people are going to want to have this conversation with you. Um, so can you just set some guidelines in advance about conversations and, you know, how to talk to you about this in case people want to reach out? Like Because 99 is not going to be available for one-on-one therapy <laughs> sessions going forward. I think we have to set that expectation. Like there's going to be people that should and want to share with you. You might not be able to get back to everybody, of course. And this isn't, you know, to engage with people, you know, in a way like there's places to go for that kind of thing. So anyway, I just wanted to put it out there that like we, we need to also now encourage parameters for healthy discourse going forward.
1: Yeah, I, would, I think
0: this will resonate.
1: I would love if you, you know, if you if what I said resonated and you want to share your story with me, I'd, I'd love to read it. I think that would be, you know, special to to feel connected. If it's something you're comfortable, like sharing a little anecdote I can even, I can redact names um, in show notes if, if, if you're open to sharing your story, if you feel like, not if, not like if you feel like you have something special to say, but if you feel like you're, you have a story to tell in a way of like, I've been through something and, you know, other people might be going through it. Um, But, you know, I'm not a licensed medical professional. So I can't, I can't really give much advice or resources because, you know, I, I, it's a weird thing to be responsible for. But um, other than like, the suicide hotline, all of those those resources, I can put some in the show notes so people know where to go. That would be great. Um, but I think the imparting words would just be, it's okay to ask for help because most of us have someone in our lives who wants us alive. Most people do. Some people are really, they are alone and that's mm-hmm. terrible, mm-hmm. but hopefully you can be that person for yourself and make sure that happens because we want you to be here And yeah, I think so.
0: Let's close on that. Yeah. Thank you.
1: Of course.